everyone. I'm super excited to be presenting a new style for the WeVA podcast. In this podcast episode, we have the authors of the paper, Yilin Sung, Jamin Cho, and Professor Mohit Bonsal, a research team from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, to explain this paper, VL Adapter, Parameter Efficient Transfer Learning for Vision and Language Tasks. And the reason this paper stood out to me as being so interesting is you see how uh, these this bullet point right here with the highlighted green text, you only need to update about 4% of the parameters of CLIP when you're fine-tuning it for downstream tasks. So you don't have to have the cost storage overhead of fine-tuning the full 100% of a pre-trained CLIP model. Rather, you only need to have 4% of the updated parameters, which are added in these sparse adapter layers that are interleaved with the original model architecture. So this uh, podcast will completely get into the details of exactly how these authors set up these experiments for having these sparse layers that you use to fine-tune something like a pre-trained CLIP checkpoint four different vision and language downstream tasks. And that's another really interesting detail about this is uh, exploring exactly what vision and language data sets the authors were using to explore these questions. So this paper was accepted into CVPR 2022. Uh, it's a really great read. I highly recommend it. And I really hope you enjoy this podcast, breaking down the details of the VL adapter paper. So quickly before getting into the details of the podcast, I also wanted to point you to some examples of using CLIP within the Weaviate examples. So in case people out there aren't familiar with this, if you go to GitHub Semi Technologies slash Weaviate examples, and please leave a star while you're at it, you can see all these great examples of uh, things that people have built with Weaviate. You see searching through podcasts, uh, searching through plant information, Harry Potter question answering. And uh, in this quick little example, I want to show you this uh, CLIP multimodal text image search example. So within this uh, clip multimodal text image search, you see how you can build a user interface for having your text to image search through using this pre-trained clip model. So hopefully this kind of seeing this in action and seeing how you can use this will further motivate your interest in VL adapter and knowing that you could you know, fine tune a clip, add that fine tune model into WeV8 and then you can do this kind of text to image search. And it's very exciting, I think, having this multimodal image and text space, I think is really something novel. You see when um, WeV8, as you're setting up your uh, Docker Compose file, you can um, go down to say clip as the model that you want to vectorize your data. Hey everyone, thank you so much for checking out the WeVA podcast. I'm super excited to be welcoming a research team from the University of North Carolina. Their recent paper, VNL Adapter, is such an exciting finding with the clip model, uh, the clip contrastive language image pre-training model is such an exciting model for producing embeddings of both images as well as text and having this vision language cross-modal multimodal kind of crossover and it's one of the most exciting examples of this is the clip model it's built into the weva backend for something that you can uh, vectorize your input data it's available with gina ai's clip as a service and it's been such an exciting thing to play around with generally the clip software and i'm so excited to learn about this VL, and, uh, VL adapter, it's a strategy to only have to fine tune about 4% of the parameters of CLIP. So as we talk about taking this uh, off the shelf pre-trained model and then using it in the typical kind of transfer learning flow as we're similar with things like hugging face where you take these pre-trained weights and then fine tune them on your data set, this new advancement in VL adapter is gonna be huge for the, you know, the cost implications of doing this and trying to fine tune the massive uh, model. So, so first of all, team, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thanks for inviting yeah, Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And so uh, can you tell us about like the, if you had to explain VL adapter sort of as fast as possible, how would you? Uh... <laughs> um, so VL adapter is just a work that we want to adapt the existing language model, a combination of language model and vision model to vision language task with the minimum parameters use possible. So yeah. And we just want those 
added parameters, learn vision language, like representations, but the rest of them still keep um, the same as before. So yeah, it kind of brings a new paradigm that how to design the vision language architecture that like you don't have to find two whole parameters. You just only have to add several parameters and tune those parameters and you can achieve everything. It's yeah, could be exciting. So can you tell me a little bit more about what kind of added layers you were putting in the middle of these models? Is it just say like a MLP dense layer in between layers six and seven, or is it a say normalization layer with where you have the scale and shift parameters? How exactly is the model surgery being done as you add in these new weights for the fine tuning? Yeah, so the layers we add is called adapter layer. And it, we, we, the architecture, we, we've tried several architectures. So like the typical adapter is actually just like a two uh, fully connected layers. And it form, like the two layers form a, a, a bottleneck structure. So the hidden dimension. So the input mm. and fit to the first layer, and then there's a hidden dimension, hidden representation, and then the other layer will output the final representation. And the hidden dimension, the hidden representation is smaller than the input. So it's a bottleneck structure. And this is actually a typical um, structure of adapter. But we also try several other variations like compactor that can uh, use like low rank approximation to decompose the, the sum of the linear weights to like smaller weights to save efficiency, something. Yeah, to, to give a little more like detail about adapter and who's not familiar with like the vision language pre-training. So there's a recently a first, first of like a vision language bird, including like a Billbird, Laxbird, BLT5, Billbird, uh, and so on, where they combine the pre-trained language model with some vision encoder adaptation. And, the, and most of the previous models jointly bind in both, like, all of the entire the language model and the recently uh, the adapter that are from NLP uh, build, and they only insert a specific feed for network that is, uh, as Ailey mentioned, like a bottleneck structure at each uh, transform blocks. And we also uh, follow that uh, adapter layer and explore how it works for vision language. So I think there's kind of two things in that I quickly want to unpack. And uh, the first thing for uh, Yilin, uh, can you tell me, so this compression bottleneck, the idea of the adapter, as well as the low rank factorization is, say the intermediate dimension of the representation is 1,024. You're going to compress it into, mm -hmm. say, 256 and then blow it back into 1,024 to put it back into the model. Uh, did yeah. you maybe like ablate that detail? Is is that detail important for making this work in general? It. It's not that important, but one very important signal is that the bottleneck, the bottleneck dimension is is better than smaller than the input dimension. It can be like so. This so, for example, if your input dimension is hundred, that usually the hidden dimension you can either work with 30, 50, 70. They will work. They all works. But if you put it as a hundred or more than hundred, it probably won't work. So yeah, so any number smaller than the input dimension will work. So yeah, not super important, but good to know. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an interesting detail too, is the compression bottlenecks. I found that that is like a good way to train neural networks, whether it's autoencoders right. or general, that kind of thing. And maybe we could talk a little bit quickly about this strategy in transformers where you say uh, mask out the CLS token representation. So it doesn't have the traditional kind of compression bottleneck that convolutional neural networks had, but you have that kind of indexing and then maybe you have a compression bottleneck in that. Uh, just curious if you have any thoughts on that kind of, say, isomorphic architecture, as they call it, and the kind of general use of compression bottlenecks in deep neural networks. Uh, I actually do not have any too much intuition on why this would, like, the, the, the compression bottleneck will work better 
because if you see in the transformer block, there's a few forward layers, right? And they actually use the inverted like bottleneck block. So the, the hidden dimension is bigger. So I think like sometimes it needs bigger, but sometimes it needs smaller. It's maybe like confused. I'm not really sure like why this would work, not why this happened. I think all I know is like empirically, yeah, adapter only works for like smaller dimension. Yeah, I think it kind of comes back to like the categorical embeddings, the way it can like blow up the intermediate representation space and say you have like um, the vector quantized variational autoencoder or the GANs, the way that they can take these big latent spaces, compress them all the way into discrete bottlenecks and then blow back up the latent space. I generally just think this kind of like the compression of it is so interesting generally. Right. And um, so another question I had for Jamin with what you said is, so there's two parts of the clip model. There's the ResNet image half, and then there's say the BART decoder half. Can you tell me a little more about uh, that encoder decoder of the BART architecture, as well as the ResNet and like the, the particular details for people looking to, you know, really get their hands dirty with clip? Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, we use uh, uh, BART or any kinds of like a sequence sequence language model. Uh, in our experiment, we use uh, for both BART and T5. Um, so we extend the encoder of the uh, original language model to multimodal encoder. Uh, actually, this uh, following the, the VLT5 uh, paper. So we concatenate the text tokens and also uh, with the grid of uh, clips visual features. So we really linearize all the visual features and we concatenate the, with the text embeddings and feed the, all together to the BART or T5 so language encoder. So it um so the BART encodes on a concatenation of what it's the original input of the text as well as the image representation and then it as it decodes you slide that autoregressive mask right so it's like iteratively decoding with the causal mask as they say that left to right kind of structure exactly uh, so in addition to uh, adapter parameters we also learn uh, a very uh, like light I think a one fully connected layer between the clip embedding to the BART's the text embedding so mm -hmm. it uh, maps the visual features to the like word embedding space that bar to understand. Super interesting. So another detail of this study that I was really interested in is the particular data sets that you're using to study uh, vision and language. And uh, maybe we could, you could take me through the data sets quickly and then I could tell you the one that really stood out to me as being particularly interesting. Yeah. So actually we focus this on, uh, we focus on like vision language tasks and also video language tasks and mainly focus on like question answering and captioning. So for like vision language, I mean, image text task, we try VQA, visual question answering and um, GQA, uh, also question answering data set and NLBR, which is a visual reasoning task and Coco captions, a captioning task. And for video language task, we, 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 we try like two uh, video question answering tasks and two video caption tasks. So the, the former two are for, uh, TV QA and how to QA, and the, the, the later are the TVC and YC2C, like caption tasks. Super cool. So quickly before getting into the data set I previously said it was my favorite, um, could you tell me a little bit more about the visual question answering? Is it um, it's mostly common sense? Is it like counting tasks, like how many apples are in this picture or what color is the apple or what kind of questions is it being tasked with? So all kinds of questions actually actually in this. So the, the counting problems actually, yeah, they, they, they are some counting problem. And there are also some like yes, no questions. The most of the data are yes, no questions. Like is the person's shirt, uh, the shirt on the, the man is glue, uh, blue or something like this kind of problem. And there are also some open qu questions like, 
uh, maybe ask uh, what this person doing, uh, what the man at the left doing, something like this kind of open uh, answer question. Yeah, but most of them are yes, no question, and some other numbers, like you, you said, the counting question and the other open, open ended questions. Yeah, to give a little more context about the data set creation, we chose a four task BQA, GQA, uh, NLBR, and the Google Caption to cover the diverse aspects of uh, different visual language tasks. Uh, as you know, Google Caption is naturally generative task, and the visual reasoning NLBR is a like binary classification task, like a, uh, if the visual input and the language correspond or not. And the BQA more, more like an entailment task, uh, Connor, <laughs> like basically uh, where you're given two or three images and the sentence will either entail uh, be entailed by only one of the images or all the images so it's a multi-image plus text entailment reasoning task that's super interesting and it also kind of facilitates the how you have your output space right because if you just have uh zero one and entailment not entailment or neutral like three labels with neutral also it you know it is it's a lot easier than having the text generation kind of supervision right with with how you kind of mm -hmm. Uh, get the signal back how well you did on doing the task? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, that's the good part why we used, uh, and sorry to interrupt you, Jamin, so you can continue, <laughs> but I'll, I'll finish this uh, intermediate answer, is that, uh, Connor, so you brought up a good point, like we, basically the whole idea of using VLT5, which was Jamin's uh, ICML paper last year, uh, was this whole motivation that can we build a sort of uh, uniform model, right, that can handle yes, no questions, plus bounding box, uh, ID selection versus captioning, uh, right, versus entailment. So can 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 there be a unified uh, sort of uh, visual encoder plus textual encoder plus textual decoder kind of combination that can generate answers, IDs, answers, captions for all these tasks in the same model? So that's why we've used uh, Clipbart and Clip T5 uh, based on Jamin's previous work as the foundation of this adapter uh, paper, right? Uh, the CVPR one we we're talking about. But uh, in the camera-ready version for CVPR, you'll see on Archive 2 that uh, Yilin and Jamin added another model, which is Clipwill, uh, which is at ICLR this year. Uh, and that was to show that you can also get very good parameter efficiency and close to the full fine-tuning performance, even when using state-of-the-art discriminative vision and language models like Clipwill, uh, which maybe Jaimin, uh, after finishing the dataset thought, you can also mention the Clipwill part briefly. Thanks. We talk about NLVR captioning and the, the other BQA GQA, which uh, Yilin just covered, like BQA GQA uh, consists of like different types of questions, yes, no, counting, special understanding, and so on. and. Uh, yeah, I think GQA came a little after the VQA, which uh, uh, tries to address the computationality of the vision language uh, task. So I, I guess the questions are uh, generated by uh, rule-based compositions. Yeah, and that's my favorite data set pick. I, the compositional generalization thing is has to be the most interesting. Well, it could, it could be a pick for your most interesting thing going on right now. Uh, so what do you think about the NLVR data set and the way that you can you know, really isolate this idea of discrete atoms that define the environments and then test novel compositions of the discrete atoms and this kind of symbolic logic of how you put together the environments to generate the vision language task. So oh, maybe okay. uh, I think uh, Connor is asking like if you have some more thoughts on GQA and its compositional challenges. Yes, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. As you mentioned, like uh, uh, 
I believe such a compositional data set is really hard to uh, solve with a like with a recent trend of uh, like increasing the model size and parameters because uh, that compositional questions of uh, like a, a recent like large models. Uh, oh, so sorry. Like compositional questions are hard to tackle where there's a like data set shortcut in the a uh, shortcut in the reasoning process. So if there's a statistical like biases in the data sets, a model will uh, pick the questions based on the, uh, some sort, like for, for example, uh, if there's a few questions like how many drafts are in the images, and there are only the images but one draft in the whole data set, and the model will not count the draft, but it will directly memorize the relationship between the draft and the answer one. So it just uh, yeah, blindfoldly Answers zero, so we might need a fundamentally different, uh, like data set or model approach to tackle those such a, like compositional questions. Do you think that's related to say it's overfit to the background or the texture of the you know the clothing or whatever the thing is? Do you think you can have say data augmentation that kind of disentangles the correlation from the causation of what is supposed to be causing the prediction of you know bird, deer, truck, and these kind of data sets? You think that kind of like causal inference is that is is a way to think about improving that? And do you think data augmentation is maybe you know a promising interface for adding that kind of causal bias to images, particularly? Uh, I, yeah, I think those are promising direction. I'm not sure they're the only directions. Like, uh, the both both the causal like inference, uh, causal modeling and the data augmentation have various like, uh things are similar where they try to smooth out the uh, like the statistical distribution holes so but uh, if we try to tackle the real world data set there's much much more aspects and combinations to cover like uh, we need to combine the different backgrounds and different objects and different title questions different kinds of answers and all these combinations can easily go to exponential yeah so yeah so i, I think yeah, we need to figure out how to uh, make this data augmentation more, much more efficiently. And it reminds me of another paper I read from uh, Professor Bonsell's lab is EnvEdit. It's a way to randomize the domains for vision and language navigation. And so it's kind of like this idea you've just described, the automatic domain randomization. It was used with OpenAI's uh, Rubik's Cube, the way that they, you know, they had their physics simulator and then they also had visual conditions. And so they randomized all the environment parameters and tried to cover the whole distribution, that kind of philosophy that, you know, we can use data augmentation or we can construct a massive data set such that we cover all the distribution. Is Do you think that idea is, you know, looking still promising or like something that is feasible? Uh, it, it might be an unpopular opinion, but I believe the like making the more like uh, great uh, simulator is a way to go for the learning more uh, a realistic data set. It, of course, it requires a uh, like really great uh, like three D engineers. But uh, to deal with the real world, uh, we cannot really collect all possible images, and and not only because of the data set creation, but it also uh, deal with the copyright and bio, yeah, and the ethical issues. So yeah, I I, I strongly uh want uh, like uh, there's a like good uh, game AI engine for AI. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic direction as well. The like the Unity environments for for vision and language and and the compositional questions of vision language, particularly because of how you can uh, control that kind of thing. And 
Uh, so, so generally on this topic of multimodal learning, is um, is this something Maybe, that you're uh, all... Connor, I can briefly mention also something about uh, embedded since you brought it up. So yeah, so the idea there is more about uh, sort of robustness and also making sure that the model is not overfitting uh, or with some strange background noise <laughs> next to someone's oh. microphone. Yeah, so basically uh, the idea there is more that you have to generalize to unseen rooms. Uh, right. So can can the model sort of uh, or the agent also do navigation in environments and objects and uh, rooms and surroundings that it's not seen before? So the idea there from data augmentation or editing the environments is basically to make sure that the model is not overfitting to things that it's already seen. Uh, right. And it has sort of more uh, regularization from that perspective uh, and hence creating different styles of the objects or changing the objects themselves. Uh, and also uh, the style of the environments, right? These things can uh, make sure, like you said, that the model is not latching on to certain sort of these uh, shortcut sort of features, mm -hmm. right? Because now it cannot, like it has to work in all these different variants too. So that's sort of like a different angle uh, that that kind of uh, work would need. Uh, but in terms of learning compositionality through data augmentation, I sort of agree uh, with Jaimin that uh, it's not that exciting in some sense to learn all possible combinations, right? And I mean, in, in some sense, it's a nice sort of balance between inductive learning and deduct deductive learning, right? Uh, like, mm -hmm. is it like showing a lot of examples and learning the rule from that versus being given a rule and generating examples from that? Uh, so, so yeah, so there's a lot of work in compositionality in pure NLP uh, tasks uh, and papers too. Um, but the nice example of this simulation engine that Jaimin was referring to, you can see in his uh, DALI eval uh, paper that I don't know if you've uh, followed, but with all this recent sort of uh, discussion of OpenAI's uh, new DALI model, uh, we had this uh, one of the first sort of text to image generation evaluation uh, works, mm -hmm. which basically used uh, Jaimin's uh, and Abhay's uh, simulator based evaluation paint skill data set that has very fine-grained control on what kinds of spatial relationships and counting and compositionality challenges to create in a data set such that you can actually test whether DALI is learning those specific relationships or is it just uh, sort of creating an average of everything that it's seen in the training data. Uh, like, can it understand uh, the chair left of the table versus the table uh, right versus the chair right of the table and so on, like all these different combinations. Yeah, like a blue sphere on top of a red cube. Right. Net. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I love that general thing of um, like generalization testing, robustness testing is a particular kind of it, a domain shift transfer, and kind of like this thing of studying these pre-trained models, like uh, on the WeVA podcast here, we were about building these vector search engines where we put these pre-trained models as embedding providers and then build them into database indexes and then provide database services. So like we love this topic of kind of studying these pre-trained models. Do you think generally that's kind of an, what, how do you think about that research direction where say for your new paper, you, you know, you're not even going to train a model. You're just going to take something off the shelf and then just design a suite of tests for it. Yeah, I think that's where the this current sort of CBPR paper we are discussing, right? VR adapter makes uh, some good sense because as we start working or being presented with all these bigger and bigger models, uh, and like you said, now you want to use those models, but for a different downstream task, you 
do not want to and also most of the time will not be able to afford to uh, sort of retrain or fully fine tune the whole uh, huge model uh, on your new task. So that's where I think this is the future, right? Where with just 4%, 1% kind of parameter updates, uh, can you achieve almost the same performance as uh, full fine tuning? Uh, and for more and more complex tasks that involve videos and language and images and so on. Uh, so to me, that's sort of the uh, exciting connection uh, between this paper and uh, what you said. Uh, and then from the evaluation perspective, yeah, like uh, as we were discussing uh, DALI eval, I mean, that's sort of like a slightly different angle where instead of making uh, these models sort of just bigger and bigger uh, and also being excited about how they look visually, uh, this would be a more quantitative way to actually measure whether things got better at certain reasoning skills of spatial relations or counting or compositionality or or biases, uh, right? So so it makes things more quantitative and also be able to compare to previous models and iterations. And I mean, eventually it would be even more exciting and fruitful to put these evaluations into the model uh, training optimization process, right? So that while improving mm -hmm. the model, uh, while optimizing the model, you're uh, trying to improve these metrics, right, as part of the optimization directly. But obviously, that will become extremely computationally heavy itself, uh, which is, again, where things like parameter-efficient methods uh, come into picture. So that might be, like, one way to sort of uh, combine all of these things in, in, and close the loop. Yeah, that's a super uh, interesting picture you paint, like very complete with the idea of having, you have the sparse fine tuning, it's cost effective, and then you have all these generalization tests that you can do during training and maybe open source tools like weights and biases might be something that pops into people's minds as something that's creating these like massive log reports. You've seen a lot of papers and open source code, like maybe checklist and NLP, but yeah, this idea of having all sorts of logging and generalization testing and exploring all kinds of uh, different kinds of behavior. So uh, kind of wrapping up the podcast, our general goal with this one was to really hit the points and uh, try to get the, you know, all the technical information as fast as possible. Kind of maybe wrapping up, uh, maybe want to talk about like future plans or sort of that general topic of the code and what you plan on do to, doing to take this kind of discovery further. My brief version, and then uh, I'll uh, Gillian and Jamin add more. Uh, like I said, I think sort of my previous answer connects to this too. Uh, that hopefully being able to uh, scale uh, this parameter efficiency uh, to newer, bigger models, but also especially in scenarios where you need uh, maybe these kinds of evaluations as, as sort of part of the model in the loop. Uh, so, so, so that would be an interesting. Uh, future direction, uh, and also I think Elin will probably mention about some future directions of VL adapter uh, because the CVPR version uh, focused more on multimodal vision and language models, but the adapters were still more effective on the language side. Uh, so there's still a lot of work left to be done in the community uh, on how to make the adapters also more effective on the visual encoder side. Uh, so that was that's definitely one other uh, future work. Well, super cool. That's a super interesting uh, direction to take it further. And I had so much fun learning more about the VL adapter. I think this is such a huge discovery. And I generally, I think just sort of the cost implications of this are absolutely massive that you can, you know, only need to fine tune 4% of the full weights of clip to say, fine tune it into your downstream task for 
whether you're working in e-commerce or she has some kind of creative idea for whatever it is with vision and language data sets. So thank you all so much for coming on the WeVA podcast. I really enjoyed uh, hearing the story of this paper and all sorts of details about this. Thanks for having us again. Yeah, thank you.